0: Hi, I'm Frankie Frane, and I've been making movies since I was a kid. I've made three low-budget feature films of varying success, and I went to film school. Twice. For better or worse, I've developed a science for completing feature-length projects on pocket change, and it has a lot to do with the kinds of conversations you'll hear on this podcast with teachers, friends, and artists. You don't have to pay forty grand a year for bad advice. This is Discount Film School. welcome back to discount film school uh anybody who's been listening to this podcast uh, keeps hearing this cannibal the musical nonsense coming up over and over again people who really dug this movie that came back uh, came out in the early 90s and if you've heard my mantra my manifesto it all kind of started there um it was the the movie that you know af- after just hearing about South Park took it home from a, block- a blockbuster Jason um it was where I rented it from at age like 13. Brought it home to a TV that was horribly out of tune. The blood in the first scene was like uh, bright orange, uh, which I later found out on DVD was not the case at all. Um, But it was the first movie that um, I could actually see. And later on, you know, like Monty Python, this is totally the case. Many, many movies after this. But this was the first one that um, I could see the fun that was being had making the movie on screen. Uh, it, It wasn't like, oh, that was a funny movie. No, it was it was I could I could see the production and I could see the fun in the production. You wanted to be a part of that. Um, And it was enough for me to go like, fuck, we should all go get cameras. Um, And then my life was over after that. Uh, I'm (laughs) sitting down with Jason McHugh. Uh, This guy, um, if anybody's been following for for a few years, he has made that movie that looked so much fun to make. Uh, He's he's made sure that it's stayed alive. Um, And then after that, Orgasmo. Uh, which he was also a producer on, and then uh, a few years after that, uh, Electric Apricot, which um, was Les Claypool's uh, kind of baby at first. So yes. we're gonna we're gonna talk about all that. Jason, thanks so much for being on the show.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: So, uh, you filled in so many gaps for me when you put out this book on crap TV. Excellent. Um, i I've been following this shit for years. Uh, and it, 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 just kind of, it made me realize it was like, okay, so that's what connected a to B to C. And if there was one thing I kind of took away, it was like, this is a dude who knows how to cold call. It seems cold calls connected everything. <laughs> uh, talk for the people who haven't read the book or don't know anything about you. Talk a little bit about
1: that. Well, just, I guess just starting with the book, um, I wrote, uh, like in, let's see in 2002, three, um, I you know, I'd been collecting emails, um, writing anecdotes as they'd happened, um, you know, and just collecting stories for quite a while. And originally, I guess I, I was thinking of releasing one huge book, um, that sort of spanned, you know, from 1992 about to 2002, um, you know, with just like basically like 10 years of memoirs. And then, um, I just decided. I guess I was too young to release all my entire memoirs to date, um, and then there was also a lot of broad subjects that I was kind of covering within each of these uh, spectrums. So, I mean, anyway, so I decided to divide them into three different parts. So, um, so the first part that's been released is Schipperdoinkoll, the making of Cannibal the Musical, right. um, and I have the other two parts written, which I'm hopefully going to get to editing, you know, as soon as possible. So, the second part will focus on. Orgasmo and the South Park Pilot And then the third part will focus on craptv.com Which was uh, You know I still have the website And the bulletin board is still active But it, it was basically like an entertainment Comedy content farm That was part of the com 1.0 revolution yeah. um, So anyway So I decided just for a lot of reasons To divide those into three stories So what's out now is sort of pull, The making of Cannibal more coming soon. Um, and Shepenoichal kind
0: of chronicles that, like, you as a freshman at UC Boulder. Yes. Um, yes. Meeting yeah. up with the, the guys who would eventually make Cannibal, then Orgasmo, yes. then South Park.
1: Exactly. Um,
0: and sort of the going from, come on, gang, let's make a movie, to fuck, movies cost money, to, right. to uh, eventually, yeah. like, how, how do you get this movie scene?
1: Yeah, Exa- yeah, it's exactly, and it's sort of like, I guess, in, in a lot of ways, um, you know, it's calls about how we sort of fooled ourselves into making our first feature film, you know, or how we, you yeah, know, in a lot of ways, we tricked ourselves, you know, we used the illusion of filmmaking to, you know, convince ourselves that we could make movies, which just kind of sounds like a weird thing to say, but that's that's completely what happened, you know, and, um, you know, we but we had a group of um you film see you film school is really open uh everybody gets to make their own movies and then everybody else crews on everybody else's features or not features but short films and that's sort of how you find like-minded individuals at least that, that's how it was when we were going to school there and everybody got to wear a lot of different hats so um after a couple years you find you know your like-minded individuals and you sort of team together um and so, you know, so Trey Parker was the um, he was the guy behind the cage at the rental desk where he'd rent stuff. And he, I'd seen him act in a few things. And we actually met an acting class with Dean Bihar. So I did a lot of acting stuff with those guys back back there. And so um, Trey had always been talking about how he wanted to do. Um, a musical about Alfred Packer and Alfred Packer at CU Boulder was a really big deal Um, the school grills named um, after Alfred Packer uh, there was an Alfred Packer day at the time where they had meat eating contests and look alike contests and live bands and you know serve beer and it was kind of a lot of of cultural references to Alfred Packer Um, that's actually just as a sort of coincidence that's also where Primus played their first gig in Boulder, Colorado was part of Alfred Packer Day. Oh shit. It's a little small known factoid. I don't know if that's in the book. But um so uh anyway, so Trey had this vision that he was gonna do this musical about Alfred Packer and him being a Colorado native growing up in Evergreen in the mountains outside of Boulder, Colorado. You know, he had grown up with the story and you know I think his dad, Trey's dad was a geologist, would, you know, take them on family trips. They went to like Lake City for the courthouse and visited Miners' graves and and all that kind of stuff. So that was the story was near and dear to his heart, and we were going to shoot it in his backyard, you know, one Christmas break, and then he just he didn't really have his act together for that. He didn't raise any money. Um, it didn't snow that sprint that Christmas break. Um, <laughs> stop so it. it never happened, and then eventually, um, summer came, and then uh, Trey was actually engaged to be married, and um, about a month or six weeks before his big day, he discovered his fiance, Leanne sleeping with another man. Um, and he went into the worst depression I've ever seen anybody go into. Like he couldn't eat or sleep for weeks and he was just pretty much of a mess. Um, and then, uh, when he came out of it, he decided, you know, he was going to have this cathartic, he was going to do this cathartic film, which was the trailer for, um, Alfred Packer, the musical as it was at that time. Um, so he got a lot of us together come back for the summer for a weekend in the mountains to shoot this trailer. And we actually had an amazingly good time shooting the trailer. Cause it was just like, you know, just throwing on some Western outfits, running around, shooting in the mountains, um, you know, just doing little bits and pieces of it. And then, um, you know, having fun campfire night afterwards, just drinking in the woods and having a good time and talking and it, trash.
0: It was used as the, the trailer forever. Really?
1: Yeah, pretty, pretty much. Yeah, it really was. So, um, even though, and, and when you see that trailer and you've seen the the actual film, you know, there's a lot of guys that were in that trailer that aren't in the film and everybody had different parts except for Trey, who was always Alfred Packer, but everybody else, you know, was just kind of thrown on hats and doing lines and, you know, I was like,
0: wondering, just, I was wondering what your shooting strategy was for that. Like, how did you, um, what, what, how did you know what to shoot for a trailer that for a movie that wasn't scripted?
1: Right. Well, I mean, that, that's really all of you know, Trey gets all the credit for that because he'd sort of figured it out and he had a few songs worked out. So it was basically based around the songs that he'd worked out. And there was even one um, called Don't Eat Me that never, we never even recorded that or made it into anything near the actual shoot. So it was really like Trey just had these little, little like vignettes, you know, that he had in his mind that would make for a good trailer. So none of us had seen any kind of script at all. We'd, he, he would just, discussed it a lot, and maybe Trey had had some pages written, but there was nothing formal about it, you know, so it was just a bunch of guys running around to the woods and making this, but it, but Trey ha- Trey definitely had a plan in mind, but then it, you know, like all things for him, it really came together in the editing room, you know, with the voiceover, um, and a few things that yeah, he did in post, and really like, we all got together and shot that, I think it was like beginning of June, everybody split for the summer, and then towards the end of the summer Trey had that ready, you know, and the first, I I got a chance to see it right away. And then also, um, Virgil Grillo, who is the chairman of our film department, he took a look at it. He got excited about it and told us that he could raise a hundred thousand dollars for this film. And that of course, you know, got us extremely motivated extremely excited. Like, oh wow, we can actually do a feature film. This guy's going to give us money. Let's go do this, you know? And so we, um, at that point, we all had a basic idea of how to make a movie, but we didn't have any clue about you know what it took to make a movie in the real world, where you needed to you know have an LLC and you needed a bank account, um, you know, and you needed like, yeah, you needed to. We didn't know how to operate a business that could take investment, you know, and then go and make a film. So we all um, got every how-to book that we could possibly find and read, you know, um, like about Evil Dead. Um, I remember reading about like Sex Lies in videotape, um, and Videotape, you know, lots of lots of books like that were super helpful to us.
0: You guys were were operating during like the big indie, '90s indie time.
1: Yeah, 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 exactly. We had um, um, you know, I think Robert Rodriguez had just or was just coming out with um El Mariachi. Yeah. So that was definitely a big inspiration. Yeah, Sex Lies and Videotape, um, Clerks. Clerks, like Clerks, we didn't discover until we actually hit the festival scene, so that didn't really, that wasn't really an inspiration, and moreover, Clerks was one, of Clerks was a movie that pissed us off, mm-hmm. because we felt like, you know, we had much greater production value and comedy, and here's this, like, rinky-dink movie shot, you know, in a, in a, um, uh am pm or whatever it was you but know that's what, and, that's
0: what people wanted out of their indie films right at that time they didn't yeah. they didn't want a musical about uh right. people eating each other
1: yeah we we were we were we were naive to think that um a multiple genre movie would be better than like a one or two genre movie so yeah we were the courtroom drama historical historically accurate love story horror musical comedy etc we just thought if we had an the more genres we had, the more value we would be bringing, and that was, of course, certainly not the case, especially when we were looking for distribution. Because um, people laughed at us.
0: It sounds like you were, um you, you, you kind of quickly became addicted to the excitement and the fun of it. Like it, it, it sounds like Virgil really kind of. I wonder if Virgil, if he had never said anything to you guys, would you, would that steam locomotive kept going?
1: It's a good. That's a good question because you know we definitely. This the trailer had a power of its own, you know, yeah. and the people every time they saw it, people would you know, and when someone see it, they say, like, When's the feature coming out? That's amazing and then we'd sort of ask ourselves that question. So Virgil by telling us he was going to raise a $100,000, he did us a huge favor because he all of a sudden just made us believe that we could actually make a movie. And I think that's like really one of the key first steps um, to making a movie is just the simple belief that you can actually make a movie. Because that's, you know, most people tell themselves, you know, like, you know, I can't, there's just so many places to say, no, this is not possible. And I mean, even to this day, like right now, I'm starting to think about my next feature film and it's, it's, um, you know, you have to get back to that sort of naive place of, like, this is happening. We're making a movie. Let's yeah. go out and make a movie, guys. And so that really, that definitely was a key seed for us, you know, and that's definitely what started, like, the snowball momentum for us, you know, and that. Um, so that, that's a good question. I, I, I still sort of think that it would have still happened, mm-hmm. um, but probably not in the way that it did happen, because we um, yeah, we just definitely got together and this was going forward and let's make our business plan and let's figure this out. And then of course, you know, we took it to Virgil and, um, and he had done his research as well. And <laughs> His research came back saying that, you know, most low budget independent feature films do not make their money back. And so, um, his balls shrunk right up there and, um, he decided to not, um, Invest in our film he actually did eventually invest uh like twenty five hundred dollars in our film, but um he was not coming around for the full hundred thousand dollars but it's true we but at that point now we ha- when we found out he wasn't investing by then we had a business plan and we were working on attaching talent and um we were just excited that we were going to now make a movie and he
0: let you down easy with some ice cream
1: he did he did let la- he let it we showed up like you know we actually like put on nice collar t-shirts and i think Ian Harden actually wore a tie and then, um, yeah, and Virgil greeted us wearing like slippers and we sat down in his living room and he served us big bowls of ice cream. And that um, that really was nice of him. And that was the first sign of like, you know, if someone serves you ice cream or sweets, just be prepared for the worst.
0: Many more ice creams to come.
1: <laughs> yes, yes <laughs> One ice creams me. and cookies would be in our future.
0: <laughs> um, I, I always, you know, wondered about, Shooting on sixteen with you, for you guys, um, it had to have been. I mean, that's really that had to have been the bulk of the cost.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, definitely shooting shooting film was a huge cost, you know. And then post production of shooting film, which yeah. directly related to it, you know, where we have to bring everything back to video um, for editing and color correction and finishing. So yeah, so that was the main cost. But I'm, um, you know, one of the one of the strengths of Cannibal and, and doing a movie right out of film school and like to this day it's still a debate you know like was it a student film or was it an indie feature in my eyes it was definitely an indie feature the whole way because we formed an LLC and took actual investment and no you know student production does that you know we and we you know we had projections for our investors you know we had other films that we were you know showing that had paved the way for us so um so it was really truly always an indie film but um we were all in school i think i graduated you know just before we started shooting but everybody else was in school you know and getting intern credit for it um so you know we shot over weekends and spring break using our students um and the, you know having and that was also our that was our big um our big sort of angle too was that everybody that was working on the film was getting credit for jobs, you know, that they could never normally get straight out of school. So, you know, any head of department, especially, that was like a huge bonus for them to be able to have that much responsibility and get that kind of a credit. So, so it was easy to pull our crew together. And then we cast mostly in that same sort of way that we'd been used to in school, just, you know, Um, using just actors and friends we knew for the most part for all the obvious roles, which was, you know, definitely for the six minors, that was, you know, genius. Cause you need to have really committed actors. You know, if we had gotten like one or two like stars that we had to fly in from somewhere else or who had all this amazing um, experience that we didn't have, they would have just been that much less committed and it would have been harder, you know, for us to, keep everybody rallied when we need to do pickups or reshoots or whatever it would be later on down the road. So
0: I've always wanted to know how, uh, the CU students were able to get student credit for working on the feature that, you know, I went to film school, uh, in Oh four. I went to Emerson college in Boston. It's great. Uh-huh. School. It's, it's great school. Cool. Nice. Um, But they uh, there's no way that ever would have happened. I made two features at the time. And if anything, they were kind of freaked out. They were like, oh, he's going to fucking he's not going to be able to finish these movies. uh, And that's going to reflect badly on the school. Um, Mm -hmm. It was it wasn't like an opportunity for other students necessarily.
1: Uh, Mm -hmm. They they
0: were like, if you do that, you're on your own. Um, Oh, really? No. Yeah. Um, well, we
1: were. Def- I mean, we were definitely on our own for that for sh- the shooting of the feature. But I mean, you know, we had full support of the department, you know, because and, and you know, yeah, and that was it became an internship credit. There was in, in at this at CU Boulder. I don't know if it's the same at Emerson, but you know, there is some real rivalry between production students and um and uh and critical studies students, you know. So um and then of course when our production, you know, took over certain like Fridays or Mondays, you know, that bled over the weekends and people missed class. There's a couple of critical studies um, professors who really took it out on the students, you know, and like a couple people failed, you know, failed their classes. And, you know, I mean, and the funniest one of all is just that Trey ended up getting kicked out of school while yeah. he's writing, directing, starring in, you know, this feature film that everyone else is getting school credit in. But that actually happened, you know, and he shouldn't have been in that many classes and, but it was for him, it was, he needed his, he needed the support of his parents and he's only going to get the support of his parents if he stayed in school, you know? <laughs> so, um, so it was just like this kind of catch 22, you know, um, everywhere you went um, with that.
0: Yeah. I mean, they, it, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of a debate really the, the role of film school. My opinion's always been that film school should be a safe place to fail. Um you should be making mistakes, you should be fucking up. you should be falling right. flat on your face without losing any other money besides the tuition um <laughs> right right which you'll lose you'll hemorrhage but um mm-hmm. uh, i, I you know, at least with h d like you really can go out there uh and you can make something much more um ambitious than a clerk's. Uh, yeah. You can make a cannibal now for, I mean, how much could, with today with today's filmmaking technology, how much could you make a cannibal for? A lot fucking less.
1: I mean, probably half the cost, you know, that's what I, that would be my guess, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, I would say half the cost with the removal of film and all the post-production stuff. You know, I mean, again, with digital filmmaking, there are some other things where you can start, you know, the, the cost can start adding up. But if you keep it simple, um, you know, then... You, you could do it for way less. And I mean, the, the other main advantage to now is that then, you know, is that we weren't about to go and buy, you know, a 16 millimeter camera. And well, we were getting them for dirt cheap from our department, but they would break down a lot. There's a lot of problems, especially shooting in snow. So now you can like own your own equipment, you know, especially, especially like if a couple filmmakers come together and invest in a camera, you know, that you can get now for like three grand or something like mm-hmm. that, you know, or, you know, and that's, 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 that's that's much more doable than it was than it was back then. So the one thing I will say that you know before before anyone gets their own equipment and runs out and shoots their first feature, they should definitely do as many short films as possible. Okay. I can say that for sure because this is one of the things that's maybe not necessarily in the book or we haven't even talked about here, but we had all done several short films. Individually, before we all banded together to try to do one feature film together, so that was that was a key piece of experience. And especially was nice having worked with different people on different sets. You know, so we knew we knew each other, and we knew what Mm -hmm. you know what each other was mostly capable of. You know,
0: yeah, the way you've described it in the past is you were almost popping off a short every weekend.
1: Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Yeah, I thought I was going to go to CU Boulder and do a lot of skiing. <laughs> during the weekends, and then I became a film major, and then all my extra money and free time went to filmmaking. So well,
0: I'm sure it took you around.
1: Yeah, no, I got. To, I mean, especially shooting um, for for Cannibal. I mean, we definitely toured all the great highlights of the states. I mean, I, I you know I got to see the best of Colorado working on that film for sure. Because um, we went to as many historically accurate spots as we could, or as many just really cool, awesome places as yeah. we. Could could fit in so
0: I remember uh, something you say in the book which I was like oh that's so you know I've been doing that for years and um, and it's it's worked out for me too uh, is adapting your characters to I mean that, that's it this is independent filmmaking is adapting your resources and your situations to the script sometimes it goes in that order um, Def- You know, you're not necessarily getting all the resources that your script demands. You're going the other way. And, uh, and if you're going to get and performances being key, performances being, uh, what people remember in films, um, finding these little, these little characterizations, these little interesting nuggets, that uh, the ways people express and designing characters around that. And then casting the person you got that from, uh, like the Sushi zamai guy, right? You described that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, that's, I mean, that, yes, exactly. Um, yeah, using your resources um, to just you know whatever can play to the best story, um, the funniest moments. You know those are those are the things that you know make a great independent film. It's like you know it's obviously you want to have the best best picture quality and the best sound. Those that's important. But um, and the best sound is being probably the most overlooked thing besides best performances. But picture quality can often suck, and you can have a great movie. Say Clerks, for example, you know? Picture quality is atrocious in that film, like, in many places, especially the first time I saw it was, like, I think before they'd gotten finishing funds for it at a festival, and it was just, like, it was really ragged looking, but it was still funny and had great dialogue and had these great characters, and, and that's what people responded to. So, um, and then, yeah, for us, you know, like you know you're you're making a film with like the kids in the neighborhood you know so to speak you know you like that was what Trey was really good about Um, you know and a lot of like the there was a lot of like swapping around of the different minors you know and who was gonna play what and you know I remember it being like a major epiphany um, you know when we cast John Hagel as Swan you know because he has this kind of naturally friendly happy disposition and Nick you know so he was really ideal as Swan, you know, and like, and then every, all the lines that were fed to him were perfect. Um, you know, same with Ian Harden, you know, Ian Harden was like a real stickler and he was, you know, um, and there was, you know, two camps that formed, um, during the production, um, between train and Matt and myself and Ian, Ian and Alex, you know, where those became like, there was like the five producers and there was definitely some struggles between them. And then, <clears throat> even during rewrites you know um you know a couple days before we were going to do a scene you know like um like the uh there's like a line you know when um uh frenchie gets his like you know says you're invading my personal space you know that that was a direct quote from an argument you know that like alex and alex Keldon and i had you know so it was just like trey was really good at taking things that were right around him and, and putting them into the story and, you know, making them funny and then also playing to people's strengths and weaknesses. Uh, yeah. like So, for example, um, I'm the miner who doesn't sing, you know, and that's based on the fact that, you know, I can't carry a tune to save my life. So that that really played, um, that weakness turned out to be a strength for the script.
0: Yeah. Um, so. <clears throat> Emerson put on a production of Cannibal uh some time ago. Oh, yeah,
1: that's right actually.
0: Who the fuck did I play? Frank Miller. <laughs> yeah, it was totally totally the 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 uh, I actually went and, and auditioned for a singing role and they were like we're going to give you the role of the minor that can't sing. <laughs> but it was it was it was good. It was it was um the the production lends itself well uh like the movie itself to sort of lo-fi environments. Yeah. Um we performed yeah. in kind of like a an elaborate classroom, uh, where yeah. the, you know, there were sort of chalk drawings of the mountains and stuff and people dug it. Like people knew what production they had come to see that mm-hmm. night and it, they're just rolling with laughter. Um,
1: that's but excellent. we're going we, to, that's, that's just, that's one of the things that's gotten me excited about, you know, going, taking the stage play as far as I have is because, you know, when we first started, putting that together, that effort together that was sort of the idea it was like well this was trey parker's first you know feature directorial debut and it's a great you know directorial debut for you know the next the next up and comer out there and so um that's that's been really very rewarding i have to, to imagine that.
0: that's like the highest compliment is to say like you, the that little dream that little stupid thing you were doing in college um mm-hmm became a lot of people's first, uh, yeah. whether it be a stage play or a film or you get people kickstarted.
1: Yeah, no, that was definitely, yeah, that's definitely been very fulfilling.
0: Yeah. Um, so I believe it was around the day you were shooting the teepees, uh, is how you detail it in the book. The, the awful, the disappointing teepees, um, <laughs> yes. yes. is when, uh, well, you had made a cold call. This was what I was talking about at the top of the show.
1: Oh, right. The cold call. Yes. Yeah.
0: Um, to I guess MTV was spotlighting independent filmmakers at the time. They would never do that now. There's too goddamn many. But um, right. but at the time there was probably still it was sort of an interesting thing to put on television. And uh, did you did you put on kind of a big voice or did you how, how do you, how do you make a call like that and get any kind of attention?
1: Um, you know, well we just we were fortunate enough to have like the right contact. You know, we we knew exactly who we were calling for. Um, and just to ask for them by name. So that I think that's in a cold call, that's like the first most important thing is pinpointing who your target is, you know? So we knew that we were calling Juliet Honan from MTV's The Big Picture Show. And the thing that was more stacked against us is that, sh- that was The Big Picture Show, and it was really focused not necessarily specifically on indie filmmakers, but more on big Hollywood productions, you know? So that's where I was like, well, this is a long shot, and she's probably going to say no, but... What the hell? I'm going to pick up the phone and give it a call, and you know, and and that's that's definitely one of the things. And I'm trying to like relearn that lesson now, like 20 years later, you know, of just like you know that what the fuck attitude, you know, of the risky business, you know, kind of like let's just go and make a call and um, don't worry about the outcome so much, but just making the best presentation, and you know, who cares? So yeah, so we knew we're calling up Juliet Honan, and we were going to just basically see if they might be willing to do something a little bit different you know yeah. um, and there was really not much there wasn't too much thought other than you know we knew who we were calling and what we were hoping to get out of the call and that was to have them do a big story about us so I called her you know and she was very polite and nice she took my call um, which was the first surprise I figured I'd be like a, a doing some kind of back and forth but I was able to kind of get right through um, and that's happened to me on several times by surprise. Um, so anyway, got right through all of a sudden I'm on the phone with her and she's like, "Oh, well, it sounds charming, you know. Um, just why don't you send us a fax and, you know, let us know who the stars are and what your shooting dates are and, you know, why we should cover it." And, and I was like, "Okay, great. I'll do that." And the key thing that I took away was, you know, she'd asked like, you know, what the who the stars were. You know, and that's where I figured we were screwed because we had no stars. And in fact the only star that we were sort of hoping to get was this woman Moira Kelly who had played in Chaplin and a bunch of other big films. I don't know what she's up to now, but she was she was definitely, you know, star quality at the time and she ended up dropping out on us while we were in the casting process or while we were why we were yeah, why we are in pre-production basically. She had already been cast and she just kind of dropped out like um Alex Alex Kelly had um made a deal, they went to, um, they were roommates together and and in another school and we just had a great connection to her and she loved the idea, um, and agreed to it, but without, um, informing her agents or lawyer or manager about this. And then they caught wind of it just kind of like by chance. Um, and the whole thing blew up in our face and they forbade her from working with us and that never happened. And which again, was one of those things. I don't know what the movie would have been like with, if she had been in it, but I know it would have been a much bigger pain in the ass to shoot scheduling wise. Yeah. Um, and
0: would that have turned it into a union production at that point or would she have done like non-union work or something like that? I
1: mean, she would have had to, cause there was no chance that we were going to be any kind of a union show. I mean, yeah. at that point we would have just claimed student movie, I think the whole way. Yeah. Um, cause we were so far away from, you know, being able to work with SAG. And that would have been before, you know, now you can do a a union movie. Um, and it's not that hard, you know, the SAG now has come around to the ultra low budget agreement, which I highly recommend. Um, and that's what we used in the last film I did. Um, and it was actually great and it wasn't too much of a hassle and it was, there wasn't, they offered enough freedom where you can actually make a SAG movie now and it's okay. But by back then it would have it would have crushed us. It would have, yeah, totally killed us. Um, so that was one of those things that was just meant to be. None of our investors even cared when we said she would no longer be in it. And then we cast the amazingly talented Toddy Walters, um, and that, you know, that the rest was history. I guess. Yeah, you so. made
0: your, you made your own stars at that point.
1: Yeah, we made our own stars, and then you know, as the irony would be that you know, this was started with you know Trey having lost his fiance. And then by the end of the production, not even during the production, after the whole production ended, Trey and Toddie um, started dating, um, and then we're together. I think for like a, almost five years after that, four or five years, good yeah. long while. So, so
0: <laughs> anybody so. who's familiar with the uh, the first DVD releases commentary track uh, is well versed. And I, I had to, have, when I was like young and impressionable, had to have listened to that commentary track a billion times. Um, I think it was one of the first that I ever heard.
1: You're welcome, and I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, so uh, uh, where things get really interesting is when you know you're all feeling really good about the product, and you're going, we can we can you know surely get this out to some kind of medium level distributor at the very least. We're going to shoot high, but we're going to set we're not going to settle much. Um, and so you the three of you, I guess you, Trey, and Matt, um, mm-hmm. head west.
1: Yes, yes. Well, um, I guess it all started really for us, you know, with festivals, you know, being the sort of the entryway into um, finding distributors in like an organic, natural way. Um, But of course, you know, festivals were way harder to get into than we had ever imagined. And I think based on Trey's, Trey had, you know, had this short film um, called American History that had actually won a student Academy Award, um, which was truly amazing. And it been in the Aspen Film Festival and it it, it had a it had a nice little uh, festival track record. And so we figured if that short could get in, Trey's first feature would surely just sort of march right into every festival. And that was far from the case.
0: I would have thought the same thing. That's how it yeah. is now. Is like if you. You know, if, if, if you cold submit to festivals to this day – I mean they're all saturated now because a lot more people are making movies. Yeah. But um, but if you cold submit, your your chances of getting into festivals where nobody knows you is pretty bad. But as soon as you even get a little bit of notoriety, if, is, is, as soon as people just kind of know your name and kind of know your movies, then they'll reach out to you because they don't want to take risks on what they're going to be programming.
1: Yeah. No, exactly. And so, I mean that's why we're – like with Aspen where Trey had already – had a track record. We were like, okay, that's great. And then, you know, he should get in there. Nope, got rejected. Then we're like, well, Telluride, you know, we shot right outside of Telluride. This is like a Colorado movie. It's about Colorado le- legend and lore. So, you know, we have to be embraced by Colorado and they rejected us. Um, and really, and there are several other festivals and I grew up in, uh, Northern California and Mill Valley film Festival is a huge festival. And they rejected us there. I mean, you know, especially Aspen and Mill Valley and, Telluride, they're like, you know, fancy, well to do festivals. Mm -hmm. Um, And we were coming at them, you know, with our, you know, and I think what happened, I, I I know this happened on more than one occasion is that festival programmers would not get past the first three minutes of our film where, you know, faces are getting ripped off and there's blood and guts everywhere. And so as soon as they see that it's got, like, these horror qualities to it, they would turn it off. And and, and more than once we would get, you know, our rejection materials back and there would be the VHS tape and you could see they got to like 20 minutes in and <laughs> that's as far as oh, it went. Oh, Interesting. I never even it considered that.
0: Yeah. You guys, it. you guys used to get to see whether or not anybody had watched the movie. We don't have that. Uh, that anymore.
1: Happened. Yeah. Not anymore. That's <clears throat> now that I just don't think they even return your materials. But, um, so that's, that's kind of what happened for us was we got rejected everywhere. And then to our luck, um, Trey's aunt was a programmer for the Denver film festival. So, we got in based on connections, which I found out is a great way to get into any film festival is by knowing somebody there. So, whether if you don't know somebody at a festival that you want to get into, it tries, it definitely pays to like try to get to know somebody there, volunteer for that festival, do whatever you can to like reach out and meet somebody and kind of put a face to the movie. Cause, yeah. um, you know, the way they're the fest, the, films are chosen is very highly subjective. Having been a programmer for alternative film festivals myself, you know, you just, it's it's often on a whim how f- films are, are chosen. Um, so anyway, so we got into Denver Film Festival, thanks to Marilyn Marsh Trazant. And then um, in Denver, that's where we got, it, we, were, we felt good about our film. It made us laugh. We were happy with our movie. But then once we had taken it to the public and had those first public screenings that's where we're like okay we have a hit movie that's what we know that was our feeling all right guys let's gear up We're because people were loving it
0: people were cracking up
1: yeah people were cracking up we got a standing ovation again this is a hometown audience that has like half the cast and crew in it but there was enough people who knew nothing about our movie that responded to it that gave us the the, a, a good um Level of confidence to kind of come out of the gate, um, which was helpful because we were about to get bitch slapped heavily once again, you know. And then, you know, so um, the, you know, the mecca for everybody now, or then too, is Sundance, yeah. you know. And so we had our eyes set on Sundance and we applied um, and never heard back from them. And, you know, we kept th- checking the mailbox. And by then, we had this office that was aligned with, you know, rejection letters. That was like the notch on our belt. So we had this crappy little office and we just had about like about a dozen rejection letters up there. And that was, that was sort of, you know, it was like a, it was, it was was a notch in the belt because we had tried and we gotten rejected. So Sundance comes around. um, Or like Thanksgiving goes by and then they make the announcements of films that are in and we hear nothing, but we get no rejection letter and then Christmas happens and then, New Year's happens and I'm in California and Trey and Matt are in Colorado and Trey calls me and he just says, you know, Jason, and I had this vision that we were going to be at Sundance, you know, and sure. I'm just like, dude, I don't know what to tell you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they haven't even rejected us. Mm. So, but then on that, that one little thought of like, we ha- wait, we haven't been rejected. Mm-hmm. So if we haven't been rejected, that doesn't, you know, maybe we can just come and show up there and go for it. <clears throat> so, Again, and this is going back to the whole cold call thing and how important it is to just cold call and instead of like, you know, thinking it through, you know, Sundance, it's booked in advance. Every hotel, every venue is taken, you know, that those were the thoughts in my head. But, you know, I guess with having the strength of having cold call all these people to try to get them to invest in a musical comedy about a cannibal, that's when you're just like that what the fuck kicks in. You're just like, Let's call them and they can laughing in my face and I'll laugh along with them yeah but I'm um, in one phone call um, we were able to book um, a screening room with um, with a you know a, a video company to come along um, with it um, so yeah called the Yara Hotel they had the web audio visual. Um, they were available for four days in a row um, and in one simple call we booked screenings at Sundance and I got to call um, Trey and Matt and Ian and Alex and tell them hey, we're going to Sundance. Let's go! And so, um, everybody quickly making started making, um, you know, flyers and um, getting getting their warm gear together to go <laughs> and, and hit Sundance. And mm-hmm. uh, by then, um, the MTV story had already happened. You know, so that first cold call did work, um, and I didn't really get to finish up. I guess on how we nailed yeah. that one, and that was when you know they asked us about tell us the stars and the celebrities. Well, there are no stars and celebrities, but the or the stars in it are all mostly under the age of 24, which is your target demographic, MTV. So you should do a story about us, about your which is your viewers, you know, going out and making a movie. Right. Um, and amazingly, they bit on that, and they they the one the one thing that they made us do, I think, just as a, for to get a trust level, was they made us buy the plane ticket for the producer that was coming out. So that was. I don't know if that was them just being cheap, um, but I I think that was just them making sure that we were legitimate. If we were willing to pony up four hundred bucks for a plane ticket, then they knew we were legit. So, um, so that's how it happened. So when we got this MTV story, that was amazing. And then, um, then when we were looking for places to crash at Sundance, um, we now were friends with these MTV producers. They were going already to um, Sundance. And they were looking for people to crash on their floors to offset the costs of their, you know, overpriced condo. So, um, so cut to us on their floors, and them on the fly at what while we were there decided that they didn't have that great of stories uh, for Sundance, and what better story there could there be than to cover guerrilla filmmakers crashing the festival? So all of a sudden, we were crashing the festival and getting an MTV story, which I'm sure we would not have gotten if we were just in the festival or it would not have been as exciting and so crashing sundance was probably the smartest thing we could have possibly done and it not only just for our own boost of self-confidence but also to get this great press op. and then thirdly most importantly was to make a lot of friends in los angeles that we didn't have and people you know if you want to meet people in los angeles that are in the industry don't come meet them in los angeles go meet them somewhere else go meet them at sundance because at sundance Everybody wants to meet you, you know, but in LA, nobody wants to meet you. You Everyone's super nice in LA, but they don't actually want to like hang out and give you the time of day, you know. So, um, but at Sundance, they want to hang out and, you know, freeze in the cold with you and share a beer and cards and you can bond with people and it's amazing. And um, that's exactly what we did. And so, um, and of course, we were looking for distributors there, um, which we found none of, but we did find lots of couches to crash on when we eventually arrived in L.A. and that was really important um, for our eventual outreach. So then we went to Los Angeles and held screenings, um, you know, which was really hard and mostly a beating and then started making, started working our way out to, you know, network and find agents and lawyers and film executives and all kinds of, you know, characters, um, you know, all in the hopes of getting Alfred Packer, the musical distributor.
0: Yeah, it sounded like the thing that was making you kind of bang your head against the wall was you were having a lot of people going, I like you guys and I like your movie. Um, and I would like to work with you in the future. Um, yes. But you were going, well, I got a movie in my hands right now that I just fucking froze my balls off making. Uh, yes. Like, can we do anything with that? And um, And that was kind of really frustrating.
1: Very frustrating, yes, because we had this epic musical on our hands that people would just have sat down and laughed and enjoyed and they tell us how funny they thought it was and you know and and then what would they be willing to actually do anything with that no they definitely would not touch it with a 10 foot pole um but what's your next project so yeah that that was that was definitely it and then you know one of the one of the things that you know people should really know is that like um, LA is really definitely embraces new talent that they don't know. Everybody's like looking here for the next new thing. Are you the next Trey and Matt? <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Uh, you can say that now. You know, but like, um, but oftentimes, you know, like they wouldn't know it if it like hit them in the face with a large musical. Um, <laughs> so that's 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 kind of common but it was you know people really open and we were getting lots of meetings and if you've come with a feature that's half decent you know you're definitely gonna get the time of day from people but it's you know what that actually pans out to be that's that's what can be sort of challenging you know so
0: so you touch upon it lightly in the book but it's something that really this the the the, the time warped piece of this really interests me um if for no other reason than when i was like 14 i bought a copy on vhs on ebay for fifty dollars um, of yeah, of, of of the of the Moses episode, and I, yeah. uh, <clears throat> or the Aaron episode, I later I became friends with Robert Muratori. We worked on that that George Lucas documentary together, and um, oh, I'm a fan. Yeah, yeah, it's it, I, I'm in the movie. You probably saw me, but um, <clears throat> he, uh, I, I'm telling him all this shit about time warped and stuff, and he's going, you know, a lot more about time warp than I do. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, you know a lot more about this than I do. But That's um fun. and he felt bad that I spent that much money on it. But basically, um you, you, you helped me in the book understand. So basically it led f- to uh you, you you become you sort of get these contacts, uh Brian Graydon, uh Pam Brady, uh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: through this MTV stuff. And it kind of leads to well, why don't you do a pilot for it it was Fox,
1: right? Yes, um, yes, it was a small division of Fox.
0: It was why don't you do a Why don't you do a pilot based on uh on Alfred Packer, it's like, well, we can't do that every week. Well, what if it's sort of musical uh, comedies throughout time? And you do – and you talk about the and, and this in is um You talk about Aaron, the pilot episode. You go back to Colorado, kind of get the old band back together. Exactly. And do that production. And then I'm going to make a guess about what happened after this because you don't say in the book. But I want to – I would love to see if like my intuition serves me and, or if I'm just totally wrong. Mm-hmm. You go back with Aaron. And they're going. I don't. This isn't for adults. This isn't for kids. It's not for anybody. Uh, <laughs> do it again, but this time
1: for kids. Is that what happened? Kind of. It kind of. Except it's. It's like it's kind of yes, but it's sort of worse than that. Okay. <laughs> um, and and I will. And I'm definitely going to drill further into that. And I don't know if I'm going to drill further that into part two of the book or part three. This is where I'm sort of doing some editing. Um, so that's that's what I haven't figured out, but I am going to give the full full gory story um, in writing. Um, yeah, either part two or part three, but but more or less, yeah, we um we uh we're dancing around with Fox Lab, who's like, and we have taken tons of meetings. And Fox Lab is, and it's specifically Pam Brady, who had found us channel surfing on the Big Picture Show. Um, you know, she reached out to our film school and I think even in that first big picture show, I'm like, well, maybe some Hollywood executive will see this and, you know, they'll reach out and call us. And that was kind of, that was a smart thing to say. Cause that's exactly what happened. I think I was like projecting or, you know, manifesting that or something, you know? And, um, and, uh, and so she called and of all the people we met, Pam was like the coolest person and really like got what we were doing and responded to it. And, um, and responded in a way of like instead of why don't you go do something completely different, you know, why don't you actually go and do what you just proved that you're good at, which yeah. is really refreshing to get. Um so um so yeah, so we come back with Erin and um and she loved it. Um and Brian Graydon totally loved it. But yeah, then it's sort of and then actually no, so then um what happened is that then we get an order for six episodes. So we actually were told that we were getting six episodes. And then and I think at that point too, our all of our representatives who had kind of poo-pooed this deal and they'd offered they lowballed us on the deal. You know, we had it we were able to get the old band back together, but we did still didn't have enough to pay people, but we had enough to go do this this short and everyone was excited about it. And and it turned out great. We definitely had fun, you know, dressing up, you know, and um, you know, Biblical costumes and old Egyptian costumes. And I was living in a warehouse with my dad at the time, and we turned that warehouse into the Egyptian pharaoh's chambers. And, you know, and it was, it was like we got the old band back together and we're taking it up to the next level. So that was really fun and rewarding and all that. But then, of course, go back to LA. Um, and it takes, everything takes months there. And when you're couch surfing, months feel like years. Um, and, they yeah said six episodes and then a couple months go by and they're like you know what it's actually we're gonna do four episodes and we're like all right that's still cool four episodes all right awesome you know and then a couple more months go by and we're like well it's not gonna be four episodes we're gonna do two episodes I'm like all right that's that sucks but hey two episodes okay great then a couple more months go by and it's like well you know what it's we're not gonna do <laughs> two episodes but we are gonna do a pilot and now Fox Kids has said were interested, and so we're going to do a pilot for Fox Kids. They're the number one network, so this is great news, guys. It's awesome. They're in good hands here. And <laughs> the woman um, who was the head of Fox Kids, this woman Karen Barnes, was super cool. She totally got it. Um, but then it was a kids show too, and we hadn't, you know, done any writing for kids at all, and and we really didn't even find out till we we're in production of. All the limitations around doing comedy for kids, especially live action. You know, there's so many things you cannot do. Um, you know, physical humor—it's it's very limited. You know, so like the thing that's standing out in my mind is there's one part where Rom. It's so. in it, this, what we for people who don't know, what yeah. we end up shooting. So this was like um, historical vignettes throughout time about um, different characters in history, and so this was about a troop. You know, Basically the same troupe that you see in Cannibal the Musical all of a sudden goes and does time traveling. They end up on a different set of history where they're doing a small campy musical. Um, so the first one was Aaron and Moses fo- following their sibling rivalry um, while Moses is trying to free the Hebrew slaves. And then the second one is basically Romeo and Juliet set in 1 million B.C. Africa – um, where the two warring families were actually different species of man, one being Australopithecus and the other being Homo erectus. Yeah. So the point was to sort of educate people on, you know, on uh, evolution. Kids, kids um, on evolution. Kids, especially, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, yeah. So anyway, th- those are the stories we're covering, and you, we found out you can't ha- hit your se- health, se- your 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 head, your head with a rock. You can't do. There's certain just, you know limitations. You were able to hit yourself with a rock on the ass, but not the head. So things, small things like that. Um, and that just basically things that were less funny, you know, you could do things that were less funny. So that was harder to be funny for kids, um, with that format. I think it's still funny, but you know, it's, um, uh, but that's, that's, that's what we're kind of up against.
0: I remember watching it and, uh, there, there, there's obviously lots of, um, Little subversive jokes that are sort of—I mean—that the, the, the that was the time for it. Animaniacs did stuff like that, and so mm-hmm. it was kind of at home. But there was there were the occasions... like I love the opening theme song for the Fox Kids version. You know, uh, you like the show more than your grandparents, and I was just like, when even when these fuckers had everything to lose they were right. still trolling the network. Like I, it really it felt like yeah. you
1: were trolling it still. Yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, not the thing with comedy, you know, that's so important that, um, I've learned very much from Trey and from Matt, um, is that it has to entertain you first. You know, if yeah. you're not laughing, then, you know, why should anybody else laugh, you know? And so, and, and nobody will laugh harder than his own jokes than Trey Parker actually, you know? <laughs> um. So, you know, and when he's laughing, then it's just, then it becomes fun and infectious. And, um, and that that comes off on screen ultimately for sure.
0: So that kind of that brings us up to uh, pretty you know more or less the I think we've covered kind of all the bullet points of the book, which I think is good for for this show. Um, I definitely don't want to. We got two more books to get through. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh
1: Yes, I've got my work cut out for me. I mean, I'm really trying to like. Now, now is really the time I need to get the second one moving, but it's always, for me, it's like juggling. I've I've gotten the bodies of them written. It's, that's nice, but now I have to go back and do the hard part, which is editing them and making them actually readable. And so it's just juggling that between whatever next new bizarre project I'm working on. So right now I'm trying to actually get a new feature or a few off the ground, um, which is the first time I've been going after that um, in a few years. I took a couple few years off and was doing tinkering with some game projects, mm. um, which has been sort of a sub career for me. Um, but yeah, now definitely trying to get the next low budget comedy feature off the ground.
0: Can you tease us about what the
1: feature is going to be? Uh, well, I'm, I'm honestly like working on a business plan for that in a perfect world. I'd be launching five different productions right now. That's sort of, that's the plan. Because they're it really, right now, I've been researching. There's a new window. There's, like, four low-budget films right now. Um, and um, something called hybrid distribution, you know, where, um, and and micro-budget films. Like, I think there's, like, a new renaissance right now um, for that. So that's kind of what I'm going after. Um, but I guess, you know, the, the ones I'm going after, it's, like, a coming-of-age stoner film um about two two guys who end up on a weed farm in northern california that's that's one um <laughs> another one called blob invaders which is a time traveling you know comedy um so those those are the two i'll i'll toss out right now that are that are we're trying to find legs for
0: yeah they sound like a ton of fun um, yeah um it'll yeah. be it'll be so much fun for you i think to get back into the swing of that
1: yeah cool. no i'd like to i mean the last movie i did um i'm was which you know we didn't talk about, but that's Electric Apricot Quest for Festeroo. And actually, we should talk about that. We should give that a plug quickly because yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's uh, that's what I kind of call Les Claypool's Cannibal the Musical. It's his directorial feature, mm-hmm. and it was another thing that we sort of like Cannibal. We shot in Trey Parker's backyard, so to speak. This is sort of the movie we shot in Les Claypool's backyard because it's a, a mockumentary about a jam band that wants to be like Fish or the Grateful Dead. Um, I grew up deadhead so I've got to make fun of everything I've held sacred in this film um, and we also cast a few characters from cannibal the musical Matt Stone does a cameo Dean Bihar has a great role I play the manager we were supposed to have Trey in it but um Trey Trey the we we were gonna shoot at this festival that got canceled Um and so that was the day we are going to shoot with Trey, and then we end up cutting that part so he didn't get a part. So I'll have to put Trey in my next film in some cameo. But that movie, we are just now re-releasing. Um, we originally distributed with National Lampoon. It came out theatrically in 2008. Um, and then we were fortunate enough to get the rights back to the movie um, after it turned out that um, the two CEOs that we dealt with at National Lampoon's turned out to be actual crooks. Um one of them got busted by the FBI for stock fraud, and the second one just got sentenced to 50 years um, in prison for uh, a Ponzi scheme. Um, and so literally we got the rights back to our film film, as signed by that second CEO from his jail cell, so now that we have the rights back to the movie, we're doing a re-release of it. Um, so it's gonna we're gonna be putting on Netflix and iTunes and doing a handful of you know theatrical special engagements um, and possibly a DVD too. But that's where we're just right now figuring out how we're gonna re-release that, um, and that's not even in my third book. But now since we had this crazy experience, I'm either gonna have to extend the part three or maybe start part four because that was a create I never thought that I would be a victim of white-collar crime and um, by with electric apricot that's actually happened so yeah. um, and that's a fun it's a funny film and I think it's got cult value like cannibal um, and hopefully have a long shelf like too so what was your role on that you were you produced so yeah as a producer yeah. and I also play the manager of the band mm. Um and uh yeah and so that I, I got to be you know collaborate with Les Claypool which is definitely a dream come true, come true. Um, making a movie with the fifth greatest bass player of all time <laughs> that's awesome Great Rolling Stone magazine so um, the fifth greatest
0: so for the future features do you intend on like do you I mean you, you're really known as the producer of, of all of these films do you want to continue that or are you going to kind of have your hands in a lot of pots now
1: um, you know, I mean, as a producer, you have your hands in all pots, really. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like you're really involved with all aspects from, you know, the, just shaping the script and the writing parts to casting and production. So, yeah, I'm definitely um, plan to continue producing, you know, do um like I call it like utility acting roles, you know, because one of the what's one of the good parts about doing a little bit of acting is that for producing, you're always available. Um, So that's. I'll probably keep doing that. Um, the idea too with um, uh some of these films is to keep casting from the sort of same t- talent pool. Yeah. Um, you know because we we're building this like kind of ensemble cast, you know, and South Park took off. <laughs> and I think because of that, and because really Trey and Matt haven't wanted to do much live action since then, Mm -hmm. you know that ensemble cast has sort of cast has sort of gone by the wayside. So I want to try to use a lot of those um, same actors whenever possible to kind of carry that torch because there's this kind of you know niche audience that likes that, and I like I kind of like seeing that sort of um, happen and repeat and playing off those. I think that's that's kind of fun. Um, So yeah, so. We'd like to kind of keep some of those traditions alive however possible.
0: You're talking about Ian Harden, D.M. Bihar, the people that we all know and love.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So, And, you know, yeah, even even Robert Muratori possibly too. You know, Robert, I can say this too. Let's give Robert a plug because he is an amazing director of photography. He, you know, you have to, he lives in Colorado, so you have to like convince him to leave Colorado for your production, but – but he's a great person to work with. I would work with Robert again in a heartbeat.
0: Yeah, well, he's, he's, um, he's extremely giving creatively. Um, you know, we met for an interview, uh, for me to do mm-hmm. an inter- interview for his documentary. And uh, very quickly it turned into, what are you working on? And you know, suddenly like, collaborating. It was like, this is, a, this is an artist. This is a guy who wants to make yeah. movies. He loves making movies. Yeah, um, no. And I do too. So, uh, so that was really awesome. Um, I got one last question, then I'm going to okay. let you go. On that $50 VHS that I bought from eBay... <laughs> I I need an answer to this. Um You got it. There's okay. a there's a quick little snippet. It's big title with no sound at all. Tubes of Fire. Okay, yeah. And then one tube <laughs> and a person falls down a waterfall and that's the end of the short film. The fuck is tubes of fire? <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, tubes of fire, a very important small film. That um Pablo um Kilseth from the CU Film Studies that is his film and I know Trey Parker had a key role in that and I um I don't know I don't think they actually ever shot the feature for that but or maybe that was just it was just a short I'm not my memory not serving the feature, feature for it <laughs> like, they were gonna do I thought they were gonna do a feature for that and maybe it was just a short or maybe it was only meant to be a short but um but yeah, Pablo from the CU Film Studies. I have to direct you to, to him. And he's actually really can give you <clears throat> the full story for that mystery. But there's a few people involved in Cannibal that were involved with Tubes of Fire yeah. as well. So yeah, that's that's pretty much like I could get you a better answer with a little bit of research from Pablo. And I can definitely put, point you in his direction to get the full story. So, And the other thing actually I can say too is that um, I'm launching something called the Spadoinkle channel on YouTube. And like, so some of these bootleg videos, if, and maybe these were on them, but there is this bootleg DVD that I think was created by this guy named Matt Potter. Um, that's got a lot of these college shorts on. And so I put up man on Mars and, um, I'm about to post uh first date oh, and you're then kidding. also I need to see this some, right away. Yeah. I'm also going to give some commentary, which actually maybe I'll do that right now since I'm talking to you and then. The talking mode. Um, I'm supposed to give some commentary in, about about these films so people know what, what the hell they're looking at. Um, so that's, yeah, that's on my to-do list. So um, Man on Mars is on the Shepardwinkle channel now and hopefully some more explanations and then I'll post some more of these old weird shorts and um, try to answer some of these questions that people like yourself might be having.
0: I only recently saw the Shatterproof uh, uh, deleted scene. That was something that like I'd never oh, seen.
1: See, now that's actually really, really hard to see because that um that got, you know, we were going to put that on the bonus material and Trey asked just to have that removed from bonus material. So we've removed it. So I've not released anything with Shatterproof. I mean, we actually, for a short while, were, re- were releasing that as a single, the lost single. And then Trey put the kibosh on that. Like, he just decided he wasn't happy with it. <laughs> it didn't match the other songs in the movie it's sort of like this weird like you know early 90s techno song yeah. that's kind of in there out of nowhere and it doesn't doesn't match the rest of the style of the film so I think that's why he, he he put the kibosh on it but yeah that's that's a truly a collector's piece there shatterproof somebody
0: put somebody leaked it on YouTube one of you guys I don't know not you obviously yeah, no
1: again like I again and like I think it was around like 99 2000 we we were releasing the single this guy Matt Potter was an intern for um, for craptv.com back in the day and we had, I had this just wall of tapes and he would go and like you know look for gems he was like a miner looking for gold with VHS and he would find these little things and release them a lot of stuff he released straight behind my back fully and then like bootlegged it oh and my God. the full 9 yards so we, we he's also the same guy who directed um The Book of Mormon which is or not the Book of Mormon that it's called the Book of Orgasmo, yes. Um, which is the making of orgasmo. So he and I collaborated on that, and on that DVD, uh, to this day have a, a love hate relationship. So, <laughs>
0: so, Jason McHugh, ladies and gentlemen, um, he, he kept a movie alive that uh that made people want to make movies, it's like the coolest thing you could do, and then. Put it all down in a book just recently. So you're a fucking idiot if you don't buy this book and read it because it it really if you want to make movies, it just makes so much sense. And I love which, you know, what he does uh, in terms of he kind of does these um, advice recaps at the end of every chapter. These little kind of like, you know what, this is what worked for us. This is not what worked for us. Um, Maybe it won't be true for you, but this is just kind of it's just so goddamn helpful. If you're about to embark on even just making a short film, uh, take a read.
1: Uh, Craptv.com. They can still get it there. Um, no, you can't actually. It's actually you can get it now at totallysweet.net. Right. But if you go to craptv.com, it'll lead you to totally sweet. Yeah. yeah. Which where you can buy it, and then it's also available um, digitally um, on Amazon as well too. Yeah.
0: Jason, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks for being accessible, and thanks for loving film. I really appreciate it. Right on. It. My
1: pleasure, Frankie. Thanks a lot.
0: All right, we'll talk. All right. Bye cheers. Guys.